0: Amen. Going to change things up a little bit. If you've been with us over the last while, you know that we have been working our way through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We are going to come back to the Sermon on the Mount in the fall and carry on to the end. Uh, I have holidays coming up in a number of weeks, but between now and then we are going to have a change of pace, and we're going to look at the Old Testament prophetic book of Nahum. And so you can find that. uh, It's in the midst of the minor prophets there. Look uh, Look for it. We're going to... We're going to begin studying Nahum this morning. I start by apologizing. Some of you have heard some of my stories. I've been here long enough that I don't always remember what I've told. I know I've told this one. I don't know if you've, heard it, but uh, I think it's fitting for this morning. So uh, bear with me if you have. Uh, around forty years ago, I was a kid in uh, growing up in southern Ontario, and I was part of Christian Service Brigade. Some of you've heard of that boys' club. As part of that, so we. We'd do projects and memorize verses and play floor hockey and things like that. And we were divided up into groups with leaders. And, and I was part of a, a group with Ranger Brian. And, uh, and he brought our group for... Uh, we went on a road trip to the Toronto Zoo. And you can imagine uh, this adult. Uh, he, at the time, was not a father. A young married uh, man. He took this group of probably four or five little boys around nine or ten to the zoo and it was a bit of a zoo, if you know what I mean. And, and in the course of our time there, I remember uh, we were waiting for the monorail. They, they've, they no longer use the monorail. They've t- taken part of it down. When we were there five years ago, I still saw remnants of it. But the monorail was a concrete track that took you around the zoo. And it had a, a, a metal, um, about a foot off or feet off the, off the ground, a, a metal, a, I don't know, conduit. There we go. A metal conduit that, that powered the monorail. The monorail was on wheels, and it would drive around in here, powered through that. And we were waiting at a monorail station, and, and I was a silly little boy, and I jumped down onto the, onto the monorail track, and I sat down on the, on the conduit. And uh, I thought, hey, guys, look at me. And I remember seeing Ranger Brian looking at me very soberly and saying, Dennis, look behind you. And I I remember turning around and there was a big white sign with red lettering that said, caution, 6,000 volts. Now, I'm not an electrician, but I'm guessing that would have done more than just hurt had I stuck my fingers under that conduit that I was sitting on. I remember this wave of, I don't know, nausea, anxiety, sobriety just washing over me and I very gingerly stood up and I got up on the platform and I don't think I left Brian's side the rest of that day. (laughs) It was a very sobering experience. Coming to the Old Testament prophetic book of Nahum might might feel a bit like that experience for us. It, It may cause... A sense of anxiety or or sobriety to wash over us as we read this message, this message from the Lord. It's a sobering, There's some sobering truths that we will encounter in this book. Sobering truths about God's attitude towards sin. Sobering, uh, sobering truths about God's judgment upon sin. But even as we reflect on these sobering truths, in fact, as we reflect on these truths we will also see the glory of God's goodness and his gracious gift of salvation that will be lifted up in the midst of this. Now, before we read the portion of Nahum that we're looking at today, chapter one, verses one to eight, I want to spend some time laying some groundwork, explaining some contextual matters. I don't know how many of you look in the bulletin and uh, think twice about the title I give my messages ever, Um, but this morning, if you have, you'll see that my title is a sequel, but I spelt it wrong. It's spelled S-E-A hyphen Q-U-E-L. It's not how you spell a sequel. We're, we're all familiar with sequels, right? Virtually, it seems like any movie that does well, Hollywood goes, hey, we've got something, let's do it again. And and they do. there's Die Hard and Die Harder and Die Harder again and A Good Day to Die, whatever. Like There's after sequel after sequel, right? The Matrix, Matrix Reloaded, Matrix Revolution. I don't know how many Jurassic Park World Jurassic m- movies there are. Finding Dory, or sorry, Finding Nemo, then Finding Dory, Cars, Cars 2. Indiana Jones 5 is playing in the theater right now, right? Like, we, we understand the concept of sequels. A, a sequel is, uh, it, it's another part of the story a little bit later on. Uh, it's connected to the previous story uh, as it tells its part of the story. Now, when we come to Nahum, it's helpful. In fact, I think it's important that we understand that Nahum is a, a sort of sequel to the book of Jonah. It, 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 one of the earlier prophetic books. The book of Jonah, uh, many of you will be familiar with. The book of Jonah tells the story of God calling a Hebrew prophet, a man named Jonah, and commissioning him to go to the city of Nineveh and to prophesy against it. Jonah's, uh, he doesn't like that. Is it something I'm doing? I'm cutting in and out. Uh, Jonah, I'll just pretend that's not happening. Um, what was I saying? Jonah, he didn't want to go. He, he didn't want to go, so he bought a, a ticket on a ship going the other way. He tried to run away from God. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that that, that can't happen. And God caught up with him, sent a storm. Jonah ends up being thrown off the ship into the waves Uh, God sends a large fish that swallows him and three days later it vomits him up on a beach and Jonah gets a second chance to go to Nineveh and this time he complies he goes and he preaches to Nineveh and much to his chagrin the Ninevites repent and believe see Jonah did not like these people this Nineveh was the capital of the nation of Assyria Assyria were their enemies they were a brutal people Jonah didn't like them he did not want to preach to them he preaches he says God's judgment is coming 40 days you're going to be overthrown they repent and believe God relents and the book of Jonah ends with Jonah throwing a temper tantrum going oh I knew you were like this God that's where Jonah ends essentially Uh, Nahum is going to pick up the story of Nineveh and the Assyrians. It it happens about a hundred years later. Nahum's message is to the same city, obviously a future generation, but the same people group. And what we discover, what we recognize as we begin our study of Nahum is that the repentance of that happened a generation or a few generations earlier uh, has now disappeared. Though it was genuine in that day, though the the people of Nineveh truly repented and put their faith in Yahweh, became his people, uh, this future generation has rejected God, has turned away from God. And, and just a, a moment here to speak to those of you who are younger kids who are here with your parents it is so i think helpful and important to see this that the faith of your parents is your faith every generation needs to choose for themselves to repent and believe to choose to follow after god and so the ninevites did not follow after that previous generation to whom jonah had preached they had returned to the wickedness of their nation in its earlier days Uh, Nahum's message, actually it's called a vision in verse 1, is of God's coming judgment upon Nineveh. Uh, You may recall that the Assyrians, the Ninevites, these people were... Used by God as an instrument of judgment upon His own people, the, the northern nation of Israel, the ten tribes, because of uh, Israel's persistence in idolatry and unfaithfulness, God raised up these people and used them to to destroy Israel, to bring Israel into exile. And those, the nation of Israel, the ten lost, are often called the ten lost tribes. They, they never return because of their persistent idolatry and unfaithfulness. God judges them, and they. Uh, disappear from history. But nonetheless, though Assyria was an instrument of judgment in God's hand, uh, they were brutal in their treatment of subjugated peoples. Uh, Old Testament scholar writes this, even though God had brought Assyria as his instrument to scourge the nation of Israel, the brutal oppressor had gone far limits of propriety and its cruelty we can read accounts of the things the Ninevites the Assyrians were guilty of when it came to subjugated people and it's it will turn your stomach But because of her brutality and arrogance Assyria will be destroyed that is in short the message of Nahum a couple other things. We can't date this book with precision, but we know that Nahum would have shown up on the scene after Israel had already been exiled. and It's after 722. And we know that Assyria fell. The destruction that he predicts here happens in 612. So Nahum shows up somewhere in between there, probably a few decades before 612. We know that he showed up at a when Assyria was at it, the height of its strength. They were an incredibly mighty, powerful uh, empire, and no one would have imagined their demise at that point. It would be unthinkable. And so for Nineveh to, sorry, Nahum to prophesy, to proclaim the destruction of Nineveh would have been uh, shocking and unexpected for people. We know very little about this man he, uh, who Who gives us this prophecy Nahum we know his name perhaps a little ironically means comfort but I don't think it's so ironic because even in the midst of this message of judgment there is words of comfort and so we will see that if you have your Bible I invite you now as we turn to Nahum 1 we're going to look at verses 1 to 8 this morning a prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Alakoshite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on His foes and vents His wrath against His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and it and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before Him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at His presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand His indignation? Who can endure His fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before Him. The Lord is good, a refuge, In times of trouble, he cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. In the time we have uh, left together this morning, I want to speak to three different matters. First, the certainty of judgment. Secondly, the character of God. And third, the hope of salvation. So, first, the certainty of judgment. Uh, Nahum, no doubt, ranks as probably one of the least studied, least preached books in the Old Testament, in, in the Bible. Uh, Nahum, as I said, is, is an oracle of doom against the nation of Assyria. Its message is that God's judgment is coming. And, and it's hard to hear. It, it's hard to encounter much of what we will encounter in, uh, as we make our way through this book. And, and it might be difficult for us to imagine how this is relevant for our lives. We read, I've just read portions of this, that the Lord takes vengeance. The Lord vents His wrath against His enemies. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. And Nahum is announcing the approaching of judgment. Judgment is coming upon this city. Judgment is coming upon God's enemies. It's on its way. The guilty will be punished. But notice this. In the midst of that very bleak announcement... We see this in verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. Even in the midst of this proclamation of God's coming judgment, the certainty of it, we are told that God is patient, that God is slow to anger, that He isn't quick to pour out His wrath. Yes, His wrath is coming. Yes, His judgment will fall. But first, He waits. He waits patiently. Why? Why? Because he longs for repentance. He longs for his enemies to turn to him in repentance and trust. God is patient, slow to anger. Nineveh has experienced this in their own life, in the story of their nation. Just a mere century earlier, Jonah came pronouncing God's judgment. Forty days and you're going to be wiped out. And they humbled themselves before Yahweh. They, they put on sackcloth and ashes and they prayed and they said maybe God will relent. They repented and they trusted. They put their hope in Yahweh and, and God redeemed them. God saved them. He showed mercy and grace. God is slow to anger. But now they have turned their back on Him. They've rejected Him. They've returned to their wicked ways in their arrogance And so here is a message of coming judgment. What follows in our text as we read on further is some incredibly powerful imagery that communicates to us the reality of God's overwhelming power. Before the Lord, before God, the Almighty One, nature falls apart, creation is undone. Listen to to what Nahum says. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel, these are mountains. Remember Carmel, Mount, uh, the mountain where Elijah had his confrontation with the prophets of Baal? He's speaking about these mountains as he, they look around Israel, standing in that place. Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon fade, the mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. In the presence of Almighty God, the creator and sustainer of all things, all of creation is coming apart at the seams. God's fury, His wrath against sin is described as liquid fire. Picture red hot molten lava. His wrath is poured out like fire. Before His consuming presence, rocks cease to be rocks. They crumble. They fall apart. And then Nahum asks two questions. Rhetorical questions. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? And the answer, of course, is nobody. Nobody can stand. Nobody can stand in the awesome, holy presence of God when God shows up. No one can stand. When he comes to judge, when he comes to pour out his wrath on sinners, nobody can stand. We face... The danger of treating God in trivial ways. of Treating God lightly, nonchalantly, like, like God's our buddy. Nahum will not allow us to do so. The words of Nahum here remind us that his words leave us on our faces before the Almighty One. Like Isaiah when he, had, when he saw God and, and cried out, Woe to me, I am ruined. I am ruined. Who can withstand his presence? When God moves in power to judge sin, to judge his enemies, the answer is no one. No one can stand. Let's turn secondly to the character of God. It may well strike many of us as disturbing as we read this text, perhaps even embarrassing some of what's said here. I mean, these aren't the verses you would want a non-Christian friend to turn to if you're trying to explain Jesus to them, the gospel. Hey, let's turn to Nahum 1. Some really good stuff. I dare say, go it on a limb. I'm not a betting man, but I would bet that no Christian athlete or Christian musician, Christian celebrity has ever, ever, ever Sign their autograph and then put, you know how they put Bible references sometimes? Sign their autograph and name one two Just, uh, you go home and look that up. The Lord is jealous and avenging, uh, avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. God bless. What, what do we do with words like this? What, what do we do? Talk of the wrath of God and of the jealousy of God, talk of the judgment of God, offends our sensibilities. Tremper Longman III writes this, Christians who tend to think of God as love are often put off by such strongly worded descriptions and may downplay biblical descriptions of God's wrath. They, let's just skip over name. We, don't, we We don't want to look at this. Tim Keller says, modern people struggle with the idea of a wrathful God who condemns. And yet, I want to contend with you this morning that that the whole of Scripture is God's Word to us. That that we're not free to pick and choose and edit out the bits we don't like, the bits that make us feel uncomfortable. Scripture says, all Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, including the book of Nahum. Integrity demands that we face What is said in God's Word here, face on, even the bits that are difficult and troublesome. So after we make our way through this Old Testament prophetic book, we need to acknowledge first that this is God's Word, that there are things here that God wants to say to us. There are truths here that that are truths for you and for me. Truths that may well challenge some of our presuppositions and understandings. Mark O'Donohue writes, Nahum wants to correct our understanding about God in ways that challenge our cultures and our Christian subcultures assumptions about God. So look with me, would you at the opening words of our passage. Verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Let's consider first the idea that God is jealous. This is certainly not the only place in Scripture where we find this description of what God, who, who, what, what God is like. Deuteronomy 4, 24 reads, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. In, in Exodus 34 we read, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God describes himself as jealous. God, God says his name is jealous. We, we cannot just skip over Nahum and think we'll avoid this. We encounter this notion of God as a jealous God throughout Scripture. This is how God speaks about Himself. John Calvin said, this is God's public record. He is a jealous God by His own admission. That leaves us with a significant question. How can jealousy, something that we see as a vice in our lives, be a virtue in God's life? There are two facts that we need to bear in mind as we consider that question. First is that There are many biblical statements about God's jealousy. These statements, other statements as well, these statements about God's jealousy are what we call anthropomorphisms. That is, it's using human language, human terms, to describe something about God so that we can better understand it. Now, that that means a few things. We encounter lots of anthropomorphisms in in Scripture. For example, Exodus 7-5, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it of God's hand, reaching out and bringing them out. Does that mean that God has a physical body like us? Does that mean that God has a physical hand? No, but, but it's imagery that helps us understand because we all understand what it's like with our hand. We can reach into a cup and bring something out. And, and that's, the, that's where the imagery is going. God is going to reach into Egypt and He's going to take His people out. And so this is using human language to describe something about God. It's an anthropomorphism. Now with that in mind, it's important to note a couple things. That any limitations that are true of us as human beings in regards to that language are not limitations that God has. With my hand reaching into a cupboard, there's only so much I can do. I probably couldn't grab a 30-pound bag of rice and pull it out. Well, I could maybe drag it out. But, but I have limits. You have limits. With what we do. But God is not limited in the way that we are, so we need to bear that in mind. Likewise, not only is He not limited where we are, but these qualities are, or, that are described of God, uh, when it's using human language, He is not affected by the corruptions of sin that that has been affected us in those ways. Any way in which that characteristic in our lives is corrupted by sin is not true of God. Here's how J.I. Packer asserts this important idea. We must remember that those elements in human qualities which show the corrupting effect of sin have no counterpart in God. So in regards to jealousy, any aspect of jealousy in our experience, in our understanding that includes uh, anything sinful or evil, uh, that is not true when we speak of jealousy In regards to God. In in our own lives, jealousy is often the the fruit of of a compound of frustration and envy and spite. But but those things are not true when God is described as jealous. A second thing we need to understand about uh, this language, and that is this, that, that even in our lives as human beings, there are two kinds of jealousy. We know this. I'll help show you that in a moment. There's the kind of jealousy where we're envious, where we're angry, where we might be even a little bit bitter towards that other person. We want what they have. We don't want them to have it. We wish them ill. Normally when you're jealous, you're not like, oh, bless you. No, you're like, I want what they have. Right? We know that kind of jealousy. That clearly is a sinful kind of jealousy, but there is a kind of jealousy that is good and right, a kind of jealousy that uh, if it were absent would be judged to be inappropriately missing. An easy example of that kind of jealousy is in the context of marriage. Marriage is to be an exclusive relationship of love and loyalty. Tremper Longman again, he says this, according to the Bible, a man or a woman should be jealous if a third person threatens the intimacy of their marriage. The, The very idea of sharing a spouse with another offends us as it should. It's not right. It damages the relationship. We would expect that in marriage that there would be this kind of jealousy for the love and loyalty of your mate. This example proves very helpful here when we read of God's jealousy. The Bible speaks of God being a God who has entered into relationship with His people. He is their God. They are His people. Uh, The the language of marriage is used over and over and over. The imagery of marriage between God and His people. Even in the New Testament, we are the bride of Christ as the church. Thus, when His people engage in idolatry. When they worship pagan gods, when they wander away from Him and the relationship with Him, God is rightly jealous. He will not share His people. That's why so often Israel's sin is called adultery. It's unfaithfulness to the relationship. So first, we need to understand that about God's jealousy. Nahum says that. Then he asserts that God is filled with wrath. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. What are we to do with that? Wrath. Anger. I mean, we, we don't... That's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? T- to encounter that. Our, our culture certainly is not interested in this if there's a God, if, if you talk to people around you, if there's a God, they'll say, well, he, sir, he, he's, he's nice, he, he's loving. There's no talk in our culture of, yeah, God full of wrath. I mean, we don't want that. And yet the Bible reveals that to us, doesn't it? Over and over, we encounter this language of God's wrath. But our culture wants a God of love. Well, the, the Bible asserts that too. The Bible tells us, for God so loved the world. In First John, in fact, we, we, God is love. So, so how do we square those two things? God's jealousy and his wrath on the one hand, and, and God's love on the other hand. How, how do we bring those together? Well, first we need to remember, as I said, a few moments ago about anthropomorphisms that, that human language employed to describe something about God The limitations that we experience that are true of us are not true of God. Likewise, any ways in which those characteristics are marred by sin are not true of God. And so when we speak of God's wrath, when we speak of the anger of God, we we often will think about our own experience of anger, won't we not? And that's what shapes our thinking. Whether it's our own anger or an experience of someone else's anger in our life, That's what comes to mind. Now, anger in our experience, most of the time, most of the anger is actually born out of selfishness, is it not, if we're honest, about not getting what we want and not having things go the way we want and so we can react in anger, at least I can, I know that. When we think of wrath, when we think of anger, it's those human experiences that, we, that, that come to mind. When, whenever I hear the word wrath or anger and I think about it, one of the first memories that comes to me is an experience Chris Lane and I had in Vancouver many years ago. We were on Grandview Highway at a red light, Boundary Road, and I don't know what happened, but we stopped at this red light, number of cars in front of us, two guys jumped out of ca- their cars and they started beating on each other, just pounding away. It was shocking. And then the light turned green, they jumped back in their cars, and away we went. But, but we sat there a little stunned. It was, it was this display of rage that, that was stunning. But, but when I think of wrath, when I think of anger, that's kind of what I think, right? Someone just losing their mind. But if I apply that imagery, those ideas to the, the idea of God's wrath, I'm going to be led astray because so often in our human experience, our wrath, our anger is sinful. When the Bible speaks about the wrath of God, it is not telling us that God all of a sudden loses his mind, blows a gasket, and starts beating on nations. Here's what Tim Keller writes. When we see all the references to God's wrath in the Bible, we instinctively imagine God's anger must be like ours, and so we recoil However, his anger is not wounded pride uh, pride as ours is. God only gets angry at the evil, destroying the things he loves. His creation and the human race he made for his own glory and for our happiness. Tim Keller describes God's wrath this way. God's wrath is His settled opposition to evil working itself out in our lives as those He has created. It's His settled opposition to evil, to sin, to those things that are destroying us. What might be helpful for us to bear in mind to understand is the doctrine of the simplicity of God or the unity of God sometimes called. What that doctrine tells us is that God is holy, all of his attributes at once. God isn't a little bit loving and a little bit wrathful and a little bit holy, a little bit jealous. No, God is not a a collection of different parts. God is fully all that he is. He's not a split personality. Sometimes he's loving, sometimes he's wrathful. I mean, so many people come to Scripture and say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, He's wrathful and angry. The God of the New Testament, He's loving. One, no, but two, God is always all that He is. He is always loving. He is always holy. He is always jealous for His creation. So the doctrine of God's simplicity is something we need to bear in mind as we contemplate these things. When it comes to God's love and His wrath, then they don't stand in tension. They don't. They cohere. In fact, as I hope you'll see momentarily, God's love becomes meaningless apart from God's wrath. Rebecca Manley Pippert, in her book Hope Has Its Reasons, writes this, Think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Let me read that again. Think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance? She, she's sharing about two friends in her life who, whose lives are being destroyed through drug addiction. And she goes on and she writes this. I feel fury when I'm with them. I want to say, can't you see? Don't you know what you're doing to yourself? You, you, You become less and less yourself every time I see you. She goes on and says, real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Anger and love are inseparably bound in human experience. And if I, a flawed and sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more? A morally perfect God who made them. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. True love necessitates anger where things are destroying the loved one. Let's turn to the third matter I wanted to speak to, and that is the hope of salvation. You look with me at verse 7 and 8. Here's what we read. And think about what we've already encountered along the way, because this is a bit unexpected. Trust that, uh, sorry, verse 7, the Lord is good. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. But with an overwhelming flood, He will make an end to Nineveh. He will pour, pursue His foes into the realm of darkness. I want to remind you of a few things. When Nahum shows up on the scene, when he receives this vision and proclaims his prophetic message to Judah. The nation of Israel, remember, God's people have already split long ago into the northern nation and the southern nation. By the time Nahum shows up, the northern nation is long gone. Assyria has wiped them out, taken them in exile. They're destroyed. Gone. They're not there. Judah's still there. And Judah at this time, at the, the time when Assyria was at its height of power, in the empire, it was a time when Manasseh was the king of Judah. And I don't know how many of you are familiar off the top of your head with the story of Manasseh. I want to read to you from Second Chronicles. Here's what we read about Manasseh. He, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites he rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished he also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles he bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them he built altars in the temple of the Lord of which the Lord had said my name will remain in Jerusalem forever in both courts of the temple of the Lord he built altars to all the starry hosts he sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom practiced divination and witchcraft sought omens and consulted media and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. And then we read Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. That's when this prophecy comes. Yahweh has already used Assyria to judge Israel, the northern nation. They're gone. Judah even now function under the oppression of Assyria. Within about 50 years, Judah will go into exile because of their sin, their unfaithfulness. And yet here, God's crying out to them. God gives this vision to Nahum of his coming judgment on Nineveh upon Assyria. And He says to them, the Lord is good. The Lord is a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. This is an invitation to repent and to believe. It's an invitation to to return to Him. In the midst of this pronouncement of God's judgment is this message of the hope of salvation. Yahweh, the one who is jealous and avenging, filled with wrath... The one who will certainly pour out his wrath on Nineveh and his enemies. He is good. He is a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for all who will trust in him. And so in the midst of this talk of God's wrath and his judgment, we see hope. Yahweh who burns with jealousy. Yahweh who is angry at the effects of sin upon his creation. Yahweh who is filled with fury at the effects of sin. How sin destroys our lives. In the face of all of that, This oracle of doom, we encounter this message of hope. This declaration of the amazing, saving, redeeming, rescuing love of God. So how can that be? How how can that be that a God who is jealous, a God who is filled with wrath, a God who says that his enemies will be punished, how can he at the same time be a God who is a refuge, a God of love? The answer to that is at the cross. At the cross. You see, God in his holiness and his love for his creation, in his fierce anger at sin and its destructive forces, God cannot simply say, oh, don't worry about that sin. Not a big deal. Sin is a big deal. Sin is an offense to him and it's destructive in our lives. It's destructive in our world. And every one of us can look around at our own story and the story around us and we see that. And God says he will not leave the guilty unpunished. How can he love? How can he be a refuge? By putting on human flesh and coming into this world and willingly bearing that wrath in our place. He bore the punishment For us, so that through trusting in him, he might be our refuge. He might be our hiding place. John Stott writes, God puts himself where only man deserves to be. God accepts the penalty which belongs to man alone. So what does all this mean for you and for me today? first to anyone here who's with us online or here on site, who is not a believer in Christ. The God revealed in the scriptures loves you. He loves you more than you can grasp. He loves you so much, and, and at the same time, his heart is filled with fury at how sin is destroying your life. He's filled with fury at the effects of sin upon you. He made you. He knows you. He loves you. He created you for fellowship with him, for relationship with him, for intimacy with him. So so that that you might experience true joy, lasting joy. That's, That's his desire for you. And your rejection of him, your rebellion of him, you're going your own way will only bring misery. And he is filled with fury. He loves you so much that he's so filled with wrath over that. And so he's calling to you. He's calling you and saying, I can be your place of refuge. Trust in me. Come to me. Christianity is not a self help religion, it's not some plan where we clean ourselves up. We come to Jesus. Ephesians, Paul talks about we, we were his enemies. Every one of us were enemies of God deserving of wrath, deserving of his punishment, and when we come to in repentance and faith, Jesus steps into that gap. He becomes our substitute, and that's true for you today if you bow your knee to him in repentance and trust. To those of you who are already believers, I want to say two things. First, I pray that this would be a marvelous reminder to you of God's amazing love, a love that is not anemic, it's not sentimental, it it is a love that changes us, it is a love that transforms our affections, Uh, it is a love that empowers us to grow in obedience and holiness because we know that he loves us so much that he died in our place bearing the penalty of our sins because he knows that our sin just destroys us, it robs us of all that he wants for us. And so, how can, we, how can we receive His grace and then just pursue a life of sin? We can't. His love, when we see His love, we are moved towards holiness, towards obedience, towards gratitude. We are transformed, not perfectly, but increasingly. Second, I pray that this might be a reminder that we are God's missionary people, that all around us are those who are pursuing sin, thinking that sin will satisfy, that, that sin will give them joy, that, that by being their own master, their own king, calling their own shots, that that will be the way to life, and it won't be. We know that. And so we are called to be men and women, young and old, who proclaim that. A God who, who is filled with wrath because sin destroys, and that we would proclaim the love of Christ and the transformation that comes when we submit to Him. So let us be, men and women, living on mission. Proclaiming this message, not some sentimental love, oh, life will be better, but no, God's judgment is coming. Sin will destroy you, but Christ can be your refuge. What will that look like for you and for me? To bear witness to the gospel. Bear witness to the truth of God's word. My experience at the Toronto Zoo was sobering, to be sure. It left me shaken. But it proved to be not an experience of death. I was close, but an experience in which I was spared. The proclamation of God's coming judgment is sobering, to be sure. It will leave us on our faces before God in gratitude, in worship not in fear, but in gratitude and worship as we marvel. As we marvel at a God who loved us so much that he put on flesh and he stepped into our place as our substitute so that we might find refuge in him. Amen.